The reading this morning is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 1, verses 3 to 15, and it's found on page 360. Elijah flees to Horeb. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazar, king over Aram. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. 
And now please speak. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks, sometimes in a quiet whisper. And we pray that you will speak now through Peter, anoint him by the power of your Holy Spirit, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in our series looking at uh, issues to do with mental health. Uh, so let's just do a quick review of where we've got to so far. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Rachel was preaching on the first in the series, and uh, she, uh, we were looking at the story of Zacchaeus. Do you remember? And uh, Zacchaeus uh, is uh, stigmatized and rejected by his community, and Jesus accepts him, loves him, values him. And, uh, and so, of course, we learn many things from that story, but we learn to value those around us. And, uh, and then last week we were uh, with Sarah Thorpe, who is helping us to think about becoming dementia-friendly. And uh, we had that service together as a, a joint service. And that's the beginning of a journey to become dementia-friendly. That wasn't, uh, that wasn't, that's, that wasn't it. Uh, that was the start of a journey. And uh, there will be some, uh, some of us uh, just thinking through how we can take that forward. Uh, and so uh, listen out for how that will happen in the next few weeks and the challenge to become dementia-friendly. So today we, we come back to our series, and we're using uh, this really good resource. If you haven't picked it up yet, do so. Uh, there's some photocopies on the table in the foyer. Uh, it's been sent out by email, and uh, so you can access it that way as well. But if you want a paper copy and there aren't any left, or for whatever reason you can't get hold of one, uh, just ask uh, Sarah in the office to, uh, to print one out for you, and I'm sure she will. Uh, just a note also to home group leaders, if you are amongst us, uh, all you need is in the pack, okay? All the Bible studies, all the questions are in the pack there for you. So it's all laid out uh, and ready to use. So please do use those, uh, or individually as well. They are absolutely uh, there for individuals to study as well. So we're looking at the second session in that booklet today, and the title, as Richard said, is Cared For. And we're going to be looking uh, this week at one of the most common mental health diagnoses, and that is depression. And we're going to particularly learn about how God cares for and restores those he loves. And we're looking at the story of Elijah, uh, the passage we just heard read from 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, at the outset of my talk, I want to make it absolutely loud and clear that I am in no way an expert on depression. Uh, and indeed, I'm no expert on any aspect of mental health. Uh, I'm a pastor, I'm a vicar, I'm a teacher of God's Word. Uh, that is what I know uh, something about. But I repeat, I am not mental health trained. And so may I say, if you are suffering from symptoms of depression or indeed any other aspect of mental health, my advice is to seek the professional support of those who are trained in this area. What I'm seeking to do in this talk is to lay out a biblical perspective on what is a very delicate and sensitive area, that of depression. And I want us to consider together how God, 
helps Elijah at what is a very low moment of his life. And as it says in the, in the pack, in that livability pack uh, for today's reading, everyone is susceptible to depression. Uh, we might call it a mood swing. Uh, we might call it having a bad day. But depression is depression. It might be a, a, a short, it might just be for a short time, or it might reach what is called clinical depression. That's a severe level. It might be the result of circumstances, or it might be caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And perhaps the thought of even thinking about depression is a bit depressing or discouraging. And some would say that Christians shouldn't get depressed. You know, we're supposed to be joyful and happy, aren't we? And some would even suggest that sin is associated with depression or, at a minimum, lack of faith. After all, there is no place in the Bible, there's no word uh, depression in the Bible. It's not actually used as a word or expression. However, if you've read the Bible and you look back at the story of the the patriarchs in the Old Testament, you will see that many of them suffer symptoms of depression. Let me assure you that the giants of our faith, many of the giants of our faith, had devastating bouts of depression. Moses is one of them. At one point, Moses is so depressed with leading Israel that he asks God to take his life. And you can read it in Numbers chapter, chapter 11, verses 10 to 15. So Moses is one. Many others, David, Jonah, Jeremiah, Job, all of these patriarchs show signs of depression in their lives. And here, of course, Elijah is one of the two humans who never tasted death, experiences a similar death wish. General knowledge question. Do you know who the other one in the Bible is who doesn't taste death? Enoch, well done. So, we are in good company when we are depressed, or if we are depressed, although that, might, that fact may not offer much solace either. But let's consider this passage from 1 Kings 19. But to consider it, we need the background, we need the context to understand what is going on. So Elijah is a prophet to, to Israel. Now, at that time, the, the kingdom is divided into two. So you have the northern half of the kingdom, uh, and then you've got, uh, that's Israel, and then the southern kingdom, which is Judah. You also need to know that uh, you have this, at this time, there's a man called King Ahab, who is married to Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel have saturated the country with the idol Baal. So in order to prove that Baal is worth nothing, Elijah sets up this contest on Mount Carmel, and you can read about that in the previous chapter, chapter 18. And Mount Carmel is supposedly Baal's holy mountain. And so if you look back in chapter 18, you'll see... Uh, If you have time to read it later on, you'll see in verses 20 to 40, this big contest between Baal and the true God. And so you get 450 Baal prophets who build an altar, they lay a sacrifice on it, and they pray that their God would send fire from heaven to light the sacrifice and prove his lordship. 
And so they, they do that, and they build the altar, and they lay this uh, ball on it, and then they begin to pray and pray and pray. They even cut themselves with knives as they're praying in order to try and persuade their God to send fire from heaven. But there's no response. And Elijah, if you read it in verse 27, he gives some very interesting commentary on their failed praying. It's, very, it's quite funny, really. Uh, but he, he's basically taunting them and insulting them as they're praying. And then Elijah has a go. So he builds an altar, he digs a trench around it, he even fills the trench with water, and then he lays his sacrifice on the altar. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah prays, and the Lord sends such an intense fire from heaven that it consumes the bull, the wood, the stones, the altar, the dust, the everything is consumed by fire. And suddenly the people cry out, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And if these Baal prophets hadn't had a, a bad enough day already, they are now all slaughtered. So what has that got to do with depression? You might be thinking. Well, everything. Certainly, in Elijah's mind, Mount Carmel... That Mount Carmel victory should have been complete. Surely now Yahweh, the true God, would assume his rightful place as King of Israel, Lord of all. Wrong. Because when Jezebel, so this is now, we're just now turning into chapter 19, just before the reading where we started reading. Jezebel, King Ahaz's wife, hears of the fate of the 450 bar prophets and vows to kill Elijah recorded in verses 1 and 2 of our chapter and she says may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs in other words Elijah I'm going to kill you so upon discovering that Elijah runs for his life not surprisingly and he goes to a place called Beersheba and prays that he might die in verses 3, 4, and 5. And as we read this account of Elijah at this point of his life, we're going to see the classic symptoms of depression being revealed and God's solution to depression. So let's begin with a definition of, de a definition of depression and the symptoms he experiences. Well, there's lots, lots of definitions for depression, but I think a really helpful one is this. It's a loss of hope. A loss of hope. When we find ourselves in a hopeless situation, we are likely to grow depressed or become depressed. Someone who's in a dead-end job, someone who just has no way of getting out of a job that has no hope of ever getting any better, may well become depressed. Or someone who's in a relationship where that relationship has no perceivable hope of improvement, the result likely is depression. And so Elijah, you see, had this great hope that Israel would be restored and respond to God's igniting of the sacrifice and turn to the living God. And instead... Literally, he finds himself running for his life. 
He has lost hope. He has become severely depressed. And so many of the signs, the classic signs of, uh, of, of clinical depression are shown in this reading. So we'll just have a look at what they are. So if you've got the, if you've got the passage in front of you, you'll see. So in verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now you might think that that fear is justified. And, you know, and it, yeah, at, well, of course he should have run for his life because Jezebel is out to get him. But God has sent fire from heaven and consumed all of those things. And, and God is certainly capable of protecting him. And there are times in Scripture when God says to the prophets to flee, but this isn't one of them. And yet, he's showing fear. Secondly, isolation. Notice what it says uh, in verses 3 and 4. So Elijah is afraid he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and sat down under a broom tree. So Elijah, you see, leaves his servant behind and separates himself off from all others. He is on his own. He's isolated. So he's got fear, isolation. Thirdly, there's a death wish. It goes on. And he, and he prayed that he might die, and he says, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. Now, I don't think he's suicidal. I think rather he's lost hope. He's lost hope that his circumstances are going to get better. And he doesn't want to live that misery anymore. And so he prays to die. It's, it's a death wish. So he's got fear, isolation, death wish. Fourthly, there's an inferiority complex. Because he says in verse 4, um, I am no better than my ancestors. And, and so he's basically realizing, well, there's sin in my life. There's hopelessness of realizing his sinfulness. So we've got fear, isolation, death, which inferiority complex. Fifthly, lethargy. It says, uh, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Why would a person muster up the energy to go on with hopelessness staring them in the face? So you see, depression has robbed him of that desire to keep going, that energy to keep going. And sixthly, dietary issues. Verse 5 and 6. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his, there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. So his hopelessness, you see, has led to a loss of appetite. And it's not uncommon for issues of depression uh, to, for, the, for gluttony to accompany issues of depression. So, we've got all these issues going on all this, all this time for Elijah. And so he lays down and he, you know, he's got this lethargy and he's got to be awakened again by the angel. But the angel must have been some amazing cook, if you notice. Because it says, So he got up and ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he travelled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. So he has this meal and that enables him to travel for 40 days and 40 nights, just on one meal. That's one meal, isn't it? Wow. 
Now, interesting also, Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. They're the same mountain. So you've got a, a link here with Moses going on. But as he arrives at Horeb, he isolates himself again. Do you notice? He goes into a cave. And here we see the next sign or symptom of depression. He's got a superiority complex. Because in response to God asking Elijah why he's in the cave, Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they have killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So you see, he's got this warped interpretation of events. And now he conceives himself as better than everybody else in all of Israel. Now all of the rest have abandoned God. He is the only one left, and so therefore his faith is far superior than theirs. Now there's more you could extract from these, I think, but it's sufficient to make the case that Elijah has what we call depression. And so the question is, how do we deal with such hopelessness in our lives or the lives of others? Well, the way that God handles Elijah's depression is certainly a helpful way forward. Step one, let's see how God responds. Step one, God meets his physical needs. So you see, the angel has already come, he's already helped Elijah with that bread and that drink. And he's met Elijah's physical needs. And then he allows him to rest some more. But notice God doesn't say to Elijah, come on, pull yourself together. No, he's kind. He's compassionate. And the second time he's fed, he goes to Horeb. And then once again, he, he isolates himself. He goes into this cave. And as long as a person is distracted by their physical needs, these needs will be a stumbling block for recognition of their spiritual needs. Note God doesn't just tell him what is wrong, but rather God questions him, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that enables Elijah to verbally state what is going on in his head before God can then shatter that logic. So God meets his physical needs. That's step one. Step two, there's a restoration of fellowship. God has got to get Elijah's attention. In order to restore fellowship with him, he's got to get Elijah's attention. You see, Elijah has got his attention going off in all sorts of other ways. And essentially, he's not renounced his faith, but he's not far off it. And so that intimacy with God has, has basically almost gone. It's been, it's been thrown off course because he's focusing on all the negative circumstances that are going, are going on in his life. So God gets his attention in a way that only God can. And so we have this amazing verse in verse 11 where the Lord passes by. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the law was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the law was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. I would say that there's, a, there's this, the wind and the earthquake and the fire. After that, God has refocused Elijah's mind and enabled intimacy to be restored. And so then, and only then, can God speak to Elijah. Only then, he uses this lovely, still, small voice to speak to him. He speaks gently to him. Not, not in a big, loud way as he did to Moses on Mount Sinai. He speaks in a gentle whisper. God knows in his wisdom how to get our attention. He knows us. He ministers to us with compassion. So God meets his physical needs. He restores fellowship with Elijah. And then, step three, there's a better understanding. You see, Elijah's thinking, well, everybody else has abandoned God, and I'm the only one left to trust him. But if you look at verse 18, which we didn't read, you'll see God says something about the situation that he's in. God says, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And so God is saying, it's not true. It's not, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 faithful people still left. And so you see, Elijah's circumstances have blinded him to the reality of what's going on around him. And so God very gently points out the truth, the reality to, th- to him to think again. How do you miss the presence of 7,000 people who still trust God? <coughs> Easy. Lose hope. And then you won't see it. And so God gently speaks reality to him and enables him to see the truth and to trust him. Step four, Elijah is enabled to trust God. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophets in your place. So that's verses 15 and 16. You see, now and only now, Elijah is in a place to trust God and follow him. God has given Elijah what he needs very gently. And so now Elijah is enabled to trust God and eventually is taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. How about us? How about you and how about me? Wouldn't it be good if we could just, you know, review these events from the life of Elijah and have an instantaneous victory over depression? But as I said, depression is very complex. And we mustn't come up with a simple formula from the Bible and say, well, there you go, that's how you overcome depression. But what we can say is that looking at this story of Elijah, we see how God responds to a man who is desperate. He takes the initiative. God takes the initiative. He gives him food. He gives him drink. He gives him rest. 
He listens, he listens to Elijah patiently. He speaks truth into his life until Elijah is ready to accept it. And he reminds Elijah of his past faithfulness. And then he gives him a new task. Romans 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is hope in God. It's divine hope. It is rooted in the character of God and it is empowered by the Holy Spirit that crushes depression and replaces it with joy and peace. It's a living hope. As the Apostle Peter says, it is a hope that it is certain as the resurrection of Jesus. It is a hope that every believer is to have and defend and be prepared to explain. It is a hope that never disappoints because God has poured his love into our hearts. So my prayer is that you and I may know that love and that hope deep in our hearts this day and in the weeks to come. Let's just have a moment, shall we, of quiet, before I finish with a prayer. Dear Lord, I come to you today to ask for help. You are my everything, Lord. I need rest. I give you my worry. Take it, Lord. I accept your peace and your love and your understanding. Help me to turn to you and not to myself. Help me to stop doing and to start trusting. Help me to wait on your answers because I know that they are good. Give me wisdom, hope, and peace. Thank you, Lord, for your patience and grace. I love you, Lord. And I love you. I know you love me so much more than I could ever imagine. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray.